I think the thing is to find a good product that offers value to a customer. Our products offer good value to the pharmaceutical companies, and then it branched off into other products that they would want us to make for them. You're listening to Stories from the Top, an inside guide to better business development. We are here with Charles Lin, the CEO of Eagle Stainless. And Charlie, do you want to let us know, or anyone who hasn't, isn't familiar with Eagle Stainless, what you guys do? So we're a metal fabrication shop for 316L stainless steel vessels, for, mainly for the pharmaceutical and biotech industries. Good. So what did you originally go to school for when you were back in college? So I, was, uh, I went to St. Joseph's University in Philadelphia, majored in organic chemistry, and then the Temple, and I got a PhD in grad school, organic chemistry again. And that led me into uh, Wyeth Pharmaceuticals. So I have a pharmaceutical background. Well, what was your original goal to go into as a career back then? Uh, I wanted to be a pharmaceutical chemist, actually, um, but I didn't realize that this was going to happen at that time. <clears throat> So I was in Wyeth for 25 years until Pfizer took over and let me go nicely. But uh, at the time when I left Pfizer, uh, I had a choice to go back into the pharma industry or try something new, step onto a new mountain. And my father and brother were here originally too, and they convinced me to join them. When, so, when did Eagle Stainless start originally with your dad? So, oh, around 1989, it was incorporated. Okay. And so, uh, what, so you was, like, what, 25 years into your career, you said you joined here. What year was yeah. that? So, I joined, I, after 25 years at Pfizer, well, Wyeth, I was only at Pfizer for one year before they let me go. But uh, I came here in 2010. So, I've been here 12 and a half years. Okay. So my question is, um, you mentioned that you create stainless steel vessels, right? Um, and and if you've never seen this type of a vessel, it is mirror polished. Um, you can you can see yourself in it. It's perfectly seamless, and it's used to store pharmaceuticals for mm -hmm. for long term studies and things like that. Um, and it's it's very specific niche industry. Yes. So how did you get involved in this specific industry? Like, what attracted you to it? So, you know, both me and my father have a chemistry background, and uh, my father's from Taiwan, and we have relatives uh, in Asia, and I can't be specific, but we started importing these, some of these uh, vessels from Asia, and uh, that's how it all started. It, you know, we ordered, <laughs> we didn't know what we were doing, we ordered a container, uh, a 20-foot container, it arrived, and we had to uh, put some in our basement, in our garage, <laughs> and in storage facilities. And we were actually cleaning them in, our in my mom's house, actually, in the beginning. And then later on, uh, we rented a office, um, and then we had to rent a storage facility because we couldn't keep all of this in the house. So you have these containers. Did you know that you had a market to sell them? Uh, I had a good idea, although I wasn't here at the time. I was kind of like at an arm's length. I was working for Wyeth, so I knew that these would be useful for the pharmaceutical industry. 
and our customers are exclusive, well, 90% pharmaceutical, biopharmaceutical. And these were something unique that nobody else had here. So we decided to, I convinced my father, I said, Let, let's take a chance and <laughs> order a container. And that's how it happened. So how did you make that first sale? How did you connect with these pharmaceutical industries? I mean, as a business owner, I would think that it's kind of intimidating going yes. to these giant companies. Yes. Uh, so we were doing, uh, we started by going to the Interfex Pharmaceutical Equipment Show in New York City and displaying these products that we had imported. But basically, that's how it started. And that's a very big show. And we got a lot of contacts there and uh, make, started making sales that way. We weren't doing any other advertising. Um, and, you know, after 30 years, we, try, we provide, as you said, excellent quality, exceptional quality. Nobody else makes what we make. I'd like to know if, if someone finds it. But, and uh, so the brand name has become well-known, and we emphasize exceptional customer service and delivery um, because when these pharmaceutical companies call us, they usually want it pretty quickly. Uh, and, and then we do custom modifications according, you know, to their requirements. Um, so, so you went to this trade show, and, and how many uh, clients did you pick up at first? Usually, you know, it's a three-day show. Um, we may get a couple hundred leads at one of these shows, but, wow. you know, maybe only in the beginning, you know, because we weren't well-known, maybe uh, 20 sales, you know, out of that. But now... Uh, we still get the same amount of leads, but they know us. <laughs> so it, it's all inside sales here. We don't go to the pharmaceutical companies. They come to us for uh, orders. So the inbound marketing, they're seeking yeah. you out now? Yeah. So the, now when we go to the uh, Interfex show for the past 30 years, we've been there and we have a premium spot. It's a good chance for our, our salespeople to see our customers, existing customers, but also to find new customers and new leads because they don't get to go out to the pharmaceutical companies. So it sounds like you had, excuse me, some influence over Eagle Stainless, even when you weren't really working there. What was, were you kind of just consulting with your dad, giving him advice? Like, yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. So like, yeah. did you just check in with him or would he come to you? How did he, that work? He, he would come to me. I mean, he lives a mile down the street from me or my, my parents live a mile down the street from my house. And, they also needed advice because uh, from the regulatory and quality aspects that the pharmaceutical companies require. So you were kind of their so, inside consultant. Yeah, and uh, so we started out with the containers that we were importing. They kind of look like stockpots, and you've seen them. They're the one series of products that we still have now. But uh, after uh, building, you know, relationships with the pharmaceutical companies. They came to us and asked us if we could make different products for them, which would add value to their uh, operations. So and that's how we developed new products, okay, besides the ones we were importing. The question is, well, in the beginning, we had no machines. You know, we couldn't make them. So we would outsource into the United States third parties to make the products. And also for the electropolishing end, we didn't have an electropolishing room at the time. We would outsource that too. Uh, but gradually, we, we, we bought our own electropolishing bay, but it's small. So we still have to outsource the bigger items. Uh, we send those usually to Able Manufacturing, really, 
top quality uh, liquor polishing house in the United States. So um, since we've been doing this podcast, we've heard of a number of businesses, um, people who started out working with their fathers or with their parents. Um, what would you say are some of the advantages or maybe some of the disadvantages of working with your father? Mm. <laughs> um, well, different. Uh, it wasn't just my father. It was my younger brother who has passed away. But they have different ideas of projects to work on here. And so that could cause some conflicts, family conflicts. But in the end, we worked it out. I mean, there was one project, uh, I hate to say it, but, uh, it, well, I could say it was a, a gun manufacturing process, project, a three three eight uh, Lapula high-caliber rifle. And uh, this was my brother's project. He was an inventor, too. But we had spent a million dollars on this project. We had bought a lot of machines, which we couldn't use for our pharmaceutical products. And it didn't look like it was going to go anywhere, you know, because to sell a, a, a military rifle to the U.S. government, you, you have to make one first, which we did, but we didn't make the whole thing, the barrel we didn't make, and prove to them uh, that you've got the manufacturing capacity to make these before they'll even consider you. And that would have costed us tens of millions of dollars of new machines, which we didn't have. And... Um, then they would have to test it, throw it in the mud, and all that stuff. So, and there's a lot of competition in the gun manufacturing space, as you know. There are a lot of other gun manufacturers. So, after spending a million, I convinced my brother to give up <laughs> on that one. But that one really uh, hurt us. That was around 2010 when I came in because the cash flow was very tight. I mean, let's put it this way: there was more cash going out than coming in every month. So. Who was totally in charge at that point before 2010? Was it bro your brother? Well, uh, my father and brother were here. I was still at Wyeth, okay, but consulting with them sort of secretly on the side. And was it your dad or your brother who was kind of the captain of the ship at that point? Well, my father was. I mean, he provided all of the capital, you know, in the beginning um, to, fund this, to fund this operation. So when you lost your job at Wyeth, mm -hmm. was that... Your dad said, okay, come work for us finally? Or was, like, how did you end up coming into the fold full-time here? Oh, yes, yes. I was going to go back into the pharmaceutical industry, either in a different division of Pfizer or another pharmaceutical company. But he convinced me. Because at the time, he was getting older now, a um, little bit of uh, Alzheimer's and dementia. And uh, he, I think he really wasn't sure about what he was doing then. And my brother, younger brother, was going a little gun ho. He was he never worked for a real company, you know, outside of this this startup. So, it so was good timing. You mentioned that your father invested his own capital to start this business. Mm -hmm. How much did he have to invest, and and what type of things did you invest in? Oh well, the uh, initial investment was to buy that first container. That was probably about. It was a small container, maybe forty, fifty thousand to get it over here, and then to when we first moved out of my mom's house to rent a uh, office space, and I don't know what that was, twelve hundred a month back then, thirty years ago, and then uh, to rent a warehouse space to put the product, and from there we bought our first actual um, machine shop space and started buying machines. It was a ten thousand square foot shop. And then we outgrew that. We kept buying more machines. We were taking loans to buy these so he didn't have to put more money in. 
and we moved to a 20,000 square foot shop and it just kept building. And then we moved to this shop, our biggest and final one so far, a 30,000 square foot shop. And over the years, we've invested over $5 million in machines and millions more in electrical infrastructure and, and fixing up this building, okay, to run the machines. <clears throat> so uh, my father didn't put all that money out. <laughs> He, uh, we, we, we had a commercial loan from uh, TD Bank, and they've taken very good care of us. So when you came in, was it with the intention of you taking over as CEO, or was you and your brother going to work together as? Well, me and my brother were going to work together as partners. But unfortunately, one day in, oh, when was that? February of 2016, he just fell on the floor here. And he's a young 49-year-old guy. And we didn't know what we was what was wrong with him. We thought he had just overworked himself. We we called the ambulance. Uh, they took him to the hospital, and uh, they told us that he had an intracranial hemorrhage, basically a brain bleed, and uh, he was in a coma for about five days, actually ten days. I'm wrong. And then finally woke up, but he was bedridden for three years. He couldn't, you know, he wasn't himself. And finally, his body just couldn't take it anymore after three years and pass away. I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah, so at that point, was your dad still working in the company? Or was it mostly? Uh, yeah, he was still here uh, when my brother had his hemorrhage. But three years later, in January of, uh, when was that, 2019, then my father passed away um, on hospice. And then in the spring of 2019, my brother was bedridden that was about three years later he passed away and i'm the last one standing here so, that's so what was the state of things when you came in was you know what is pretty much just you running the show was everything well when i first came in my father and brother were still here in 2010 they, they didn't uh, my brother didn't have his uh, hemorrhage till 2016 uh, and my father didn't pass away till 2019 but when i first came in his his uh, dementia and Alzheimer's was already kicking in in 2010 when I came because I can remember he would sit in my office and ask me the same things over and over all day because he, he couldn't remember. You know, he wanted to know financial information. <clears throat> so you came in, your, so at the point you came in, your dad was starting his mental decline. Mm -hmm. Your brother had just gone through his million-dollar venture into manufacturing rifles. What was kind of your first step was it just taking inventory of the company as a whole what did you well it, it was to size up the finances the manu our manufacturing uh, capabilities our inventory of course we we hold a lot of inventory because of the long lead times to make some of our products or import them you know overseas on a boat could take you three four months um, but when i came in in 2010 it was very scary um <clears throat> there was more cash going out and coming in and actually we, we had the bank loans so that gave us all the machines but we bought a lot of machines we didn't need for the gun project <clears throat> and they couldn't be used to make our our products for our pharmaceutical customers so they were kind of like a useless machine which I've sold since but when I came in because of all those machines that we didn't need <clears throat> we were in negative cash flow and Luckily, my mom and dad were able to loan us. It was up to, I think, about a million bucks to cover the uh, negative cash flow 
from 2010 to about 2013. And uh, when I came in, the first thing I did was I cut the unnecessary expenses, got rid of the unnecessary machines. And so I was able to basically pay my parents back that million dollars they lent us. And we paid down our commercial loan. It's a fraction of what it was before. So we're in good financial shape, good cash flow now. Good. Yeah. So you came in with pharmaceutical experience, but not necessarily business training. What did you do to kind of gain that knowledge of running a business? Yes. So when I was at uh, Wyeth and Pfizer at the end, I mean, I was in uh, global strategic sourcing. So they, they wanted me to outsource the manufacturing of drug substance to third parties around the world. So I had a lot of contract and business experience. I had no experience with like HR and finance and all that. And uh, I, I had worked with many lawyers, you know, at Wyeth. So the finance part and accounting part, which I will speak on, I learned pretty quickly actually on the job with, uh, with our accountant, our CPA, and our lawyers, and our banks. And, you know, if you have good relationships with them, you know, they'll help you out. So. so as you're going over the numbers with your accountant and you see that you have this negative cash flow, mm -hmm. um, what were you able to cut in order to, to go back positive? Well, for instance, uh, we, oh, the other one is payroll I had to learn. I mean, that sounds like a simple thing in HR. But we were, I don't want to mention the name of the company, but we were paying a payroll company. I think it was like $680 every two weeks for their premium service, okay? I found another local company, and I like re personal references. I have friends that are, have dental practices. It's a smaller company. It's now like $80 a month, $80 every two weeks or 160 a month. There are things like that. Or we were overpaying on internet. We were overpaying on cleaning. Um, what else was there? There was so much else. I mean, oh, I also spent a lot of time in global procurement. So I was a purchasing guy, too. So we looked at all of our suppliers and uh, where can we cut down or can we negotiate lower prices? So that was a lot of it, too. So you kind of started financially. Basically, we looked at all the low-hanging purchase fruit and cut out the ones that we didn't need or renegotiated lower contracts. Uh, did I mention cleaning? We were spending a ridiculous amount on cleaning. I couldn't believe it. So on cleaning your, your cleaning, products, the, uh, cleaning the office, office area, just okay. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so once you got financials set, which was the kind of the first biggest mm -hmm. problem you saw, what was your next step as far as administrative stuff that you wanted to tackle within the company? Um, personnel wise, I uh, let some go um, because sometimes when you have a troublemaker, it just upsets everybody else. So we've, I, we've got the right crew right now. They work very well together, very, very loyal. And most of them have been here 10 years or more, actually. So they know their jobs. We're not like a uh, job shop where I got to cut them on everything. You know, if they come in five minutes late, you know, I'm very flexible with their personal lives. Um, and we've hired some newer ones, less than five years. Uh, but I won't use those hiring agencies that, you know, make you pay 30% of the salary. It's usually word of mouth. I find somebody. Um, yeah. So, uh, what kind of um, what kind of company culture do you try to cultivate here that makes people want to stay for the long term? Um, we're, we're like a small family business. 
uh, I keep them, I pay them well. I want to be very competitive. I give them good bonuses every year. And in fact, this year is the first time I gave a mid-year bonus because of the consumer price index. And we all know about that. So I try to, sh I tell them, I try to share the profits. If I got the ba cash in the bank, I will share it with them. I don't do this just for the Lynn family because we're all together in this. And I'm very flexible um, with the employees. If someone wants to take a, if they use their va vacations up and they want to take a day off without pay, you know, I'm okay with that. Even some other items, but I can't say uh, on this one. But I think because they know I'm very flexible. I'm not like a hardline boss, let's put it that way. And we go out, we have our, our, our group uh, lunches and dinners. So I try to um, keep everybody together. And like, I just got some uh, box tickets to a Flyers game. <laughs> That's nice because you get the free food, the premium parking and all that and drinks. So I'm not going to go. I give it to the employees, you know, so you got to have fun being a Flyers fan, some of them. Good. So um, I want to talk a little bit about some of the legal side of things. I'm sure there's plenty of regulations yes. you guys need to keep up with. How did your dad and brother deal with all that? And was there any adjustments you needed to make when you came in? Uh, we had an attorney uh, in the beginning. I won't mention the name, but he wasn't, uh, let's say he was a lower cost attorney, but you pay for what you get. Okay. So, and I, as I told you, I like recommendations. And when the bank was reviewing our loans, when we refinanced, they recommended another one who was much better, but much more expensive, but it was worth the money, <laughs> worth the money. So he kind of so, helped you guys clean up everything, right. make sure. You and actually the bank, when they reviewed our uh, financial statements, uh, they weren't happy with the accountant that we had. So we switched to a much better CPA. Uh, Basically, they found a lot of mistakes in our accounting, in our income statements and uh, balance sheets. So everything's been cleaned up a lot better now. And, so. and that relationship with the bank you're talking about, was that them when you're working with loans and processing stuff like that? Or how were yes. you using that relationship? So we had a uh, commercial loan with Citibank. And my brother got it. Yeah, I mean, at the time, that was 2009. I guess I could say it was like $2.2 million locked in at a swap. It was a swap loan locked at 6%. Um, but the problem with those kind of loans is if you want to pay it off or, you know, break it, there's a huge breakage fee. And it depends on the current interest rates. And so when we locked this in at 6%, it sounded good. But, you know, after 2009, the interest rates have been gone down a lot. So we're re we were really overpaying uh, on interest. So... Eventually, what happened was, oh, God, it was like 2000 and uh, trying to remember, maybe 14. We refinanced with TD Bank. Um, it was the same swap loan, okay, same interest rate. So there was no difference. But by that time, it, it was a 15-year loan. Uh, it didn't make sense to break the loan because there would have been a huge uh, breakage fee. So we stuck with it. How much is the breakage fee on a loan like that? Well, back then it was like three hundred thousand. It was huge. Oh, we, wow. It was made no sense to refinance from six percent down to I don't know what the going rate was back then. Maybe around three, or you know, it was a lot lower. But we kept it. But we kept it because we figure if we break it, there's that huge fee. 
So at that time, you know, you know, as the loans amortized, the payments were more uh, principal than interest. Okay, so we're going to stick it out till the end of uh, another two years. I think this loan goes for a fifteen-year loan. <clears throat> but do you know the interest rates have come up recently? So now with a swap loan, if the interest rates come up over to certain over to six percent, we're in the money. So if we want to break the loan. They pay us. <laughs> There's no fee. It's like two hundred, two thousand. It's not a lot. It's like two thousand dollars. But I may do that. That's what I may do. It's just to pay it off because it's. It has to do with the LIBOR. I don't know if you're familiar with that. And that's going out in I think June next year. And they have something new called a so sofo sofa loan, like a swap loan, where you can't break it either. Well, I don't want to get into a new one either at the current six percent rate because they may go down in the future. Right. So right now we're really uh, flush with cash. I may just pay it off, pay the loan off, and we'll get. We won't have a fee now. So. And uh, what was that loan primarily <laughs> used for? Was that just machines? Machines. Yeah. How do you guys, Matt? I know you, we've, we've been on the floor a lot with some of the shoots we've done. How do you guys manage the maintenance of the machines? I'm sure it's very expensive to upkeep and upkeep and repair yeah. them. When that and it's also analytical instruments that have to be calibrated. So we have third party to calibrate the instruments, and we bring in uh, third parties uh, for the necessary maintenance to so our CNC machines and our welders and things like that. But that's just periodic. Most of the maintenance of the big expensive like CNC machines is done by our guys here. And with your technicians who are doing the, the machining themselves and the upkeep, do you guys do all the training for them, or do you try to hire people who are proficient in that to begin with? Uh, we sent them out for training. And once they became proficient, they, they can do it on their own, or they'll call the manufacturer if they have a question. And um, I just had another question. How many welders do you hire here? So... We have one welder. One welder. Actually, we have two. The, the uh, production manager is a welder, too. The second welder is actually a lady, and she's very good, uh, um, very passionate about what she does. It's uh, hard to find a welder now, especially uh, the, the younger people in the trade schools aren't getting into it as much. And then the older guys, they don't want to move from one company to the other, or you have to pay a lot of money to get one of them to move. Yeah, I know there's a lot of conversations about um, going to trade schools, learning a skill like welding. Welding always comes up a lot as one of those careers that mm. can be high paying. Um, how much can you make as a welder? And what would you say to somebody who's interested in welding? Um, a welder could make easily $30 an hour, you know, uh, not a uh, <clears throat> apprentice, but someone who can weld um plus full benefits and then they'll move up quickly from there if they're good and that's that's like a full-time career you can just build your whole career off of that yeah yep. specific and we, skill. you know we have the 401k plan for them i encourage them to see <laughs> um <clears throat> and uh yeah the welding is a is a is a tough one to find someone that can do that i'm actually thinking because we just have the one lady to to find a backup but the conundrum is I don't have enough welding work to hire another one yet. So <clears throat> so there's a demand for it, but not a large supply of people going into the field right now? Yes, yes. 
Okay. Um, with all these machines and everything, I'm sure safety is an issue. How do you guys deal with safety in the company and make sure everyone's staying safe while working around all these? So we, we have a, <clears throat> one of our salespeople is a dual sales manager and she's in charge of safety, EHNS, environmental health and safety. So she goes around and, you know, she, she keeps a tight, tight control on them if they're not wearing their glasses or their <laughs> steel tip sh safety shoes and things like that. She makes sure our eyewash, eyewash stations are in shape or regularly inspected. Uh, everything from the elect to the exit signs. We do our fire, uh, fire drills here even. So she's pretty good. She comes from a pharmaceutical company too. So she's been through it all too. So with the hiring, you, you mentioned you may mainly go through referrals for hires. Mm. What is your network for finding people? Is it just literally friends who are in business or? Well, if it's something like an accountant or a payroll company, other friends who are in business usually. Or it could be my accountant because he worked with so many other companies, right? So he could recommend a different payroll company. Um, or it could be our lawyers, one of our lawyers. But for the, the guys uh, working in the shop, that's a little tougher. We like to hire them young right out of uh, tech school. In fact, I got one guy right out of high school with no previous CNC, CNC machining experience. And our senior uh, engineer, you know, if, he, if you can get along with him, he'll teach you everything you need to know. And he's running a machine, setting it up and running it by himself now, but he, he can't do the programming yet because he didn't go to to school. But uh, I like to hire them young and train them on the job. Yeah. Good. Um, I want to talk a little bit about product development. So you guys originally started with getting a container of these, mm -hmm. like you were saying, kind of like those boiling pot almost looking yeah. things. What has your guys' strategy been for developing new and alternate products? So it's c communication with the pharmaceutical companies on what they need. So like our SDB series, if you could see them, those are our stability bottles from one mil to, uh, we make them up to 750 mils. Uh, a pharmaceutical company came and asked us, can you make something like this? This is before we even had machines. And it's usually the vaccine companies that uh, buy these from us and they're do doing shelf life or stability studies in them because their vaccines or drug substance or intermediates are made or stored in steel already. So they need the little stability vessels to do the stability studies. So they came up to us, a company came up to us and asked us if we could make these. And we didn't have the machines to do it, so we outsourced it <laughs> to another company with CNC machines. And that's how it started. And they, they are about a third of our sales right now, so one of our big products. And then uh, <clears throat> we have another uh, series of vessels. Uh, they're they're made from sheet metal, the bottles, the BTB series and the PSF series. Um, it was the same thing. We had requests from our customers to see if we could make something like that. And we started out with little ones and gradually made bigger and bigger ones. We had to buy more and more machines. These are highly specialized machines that no one else has. And we configured them um, to do what we need to do. These machines are usually used by companies like Kohler, they're polishing machines to polish the sinks and the faucets and stuff like that. Well, we reconfigured them here with our uh, machinists. Um, and we had a tool and guide guy who really helped us a lot. 
to make our bottles. You can imagine so really a bottle, a 20-liter bottle with a two-inch neck. How are you going to polish the inside of that thing to be mirror polished? So that's the, that's the trick and the uh, technologies that we've developed over the years. So what was the catalyst that drove you guys from working with outside manufacturers to create these products for you to doing them in-house? What made you want to make that switch? Well, we didn't want to be dependent on third parties, solely dependent on third parties to supply us products. And also they were coming from overseas and there's a long lead time. So we wanted to be able to be dependent on ourselves and make them here, made in the USA. And uh, in the beginning it was 100% imported and now it's, I can't say the exact percentages here, but more of it is made here than imported. <laughs> we're heading to increase the amount made here in USA. That, that's all. We love stuff that's made right here. At yeah. Home. So what was that process of building your own capabilities to create all that stuff? I guess you guys needed to invest in the machines and learn yeah. them. So in the beginning, I'll give you an example. Like the stability bottles, they're made from bars of steel, okay? And they're cut into slugs and then milled by the stability machines, the CNC machines, I'm sorry, uh, to the bottle, okay? We didn't have those machines. One of those Morisaki machines could cost like half a million dollars. So we were outsourcing it to third parties who had these machines. Then uh, we would finish off the product here. We do a lot of special polishing on them so that uh, after the machines, they're not in the final state. But we could do the polishing here with simpler machines or by hand polishing to make the quality exceptional as far as the finish, uh, the surface finish and the welds if there were any. Um, <clears throat> but eventually, you know, we had enough capital to buy a CNC machine, which wasn't cheap. We, had, we used the loans to uh, buy them. Uh, so gosh, we have three CNC machines now. They're, you know, each about a half a million each. So where do you source your raw materials from, <laughs> like the, the steel bars? Yeah, so it all comes from uh, Penn Stainless is our distributor here. It's all U.S. steel mills, U.S. heat certs, uh, for the manufacturing lot of steel uh, because our pharmaceutical customers like to see it made in USA. And, you know, we have to provide the heat cert of the lot of steel so they know where it came from. And that, that, that uh, heat number is laser engraved on all our products for traceability. We also laser engrave our manufacturing lot number for traceability. Almost like drug manufacturing. I mean, they want to, you know, we have our electronic batch records. They want to go through everything to see where it came from. So, <clears throat> so I know you guys, what you offer is very high quality products. How did you go about when you're working with partners to get, bring the steel in the, right. that you're manufacturing? Mm -hmm. How do you assure and do the quality tests on that stuff as you're bringing mm -hmm. partners into that side? <clears throat> well, the uh, steel bars are two, two, they're, they're, uh, they have the heat certain, okay? Now we could do, uh, we have a, a x-ray fluorescent gun, so we could do a surface ID uh, check on the bars, but you know, uh, we've never had a problem with the quality of the steel from the American steel mills. So we just go by the heat certs. Now, if we buy sheet metal, it's the same thing. Uh, usually we buy it at 2B grade, it comes with a heat cert. Um, and we can check it with the x-ray fluorescence gun, which can tell the difference between like 304 and 316, you know, steel. So well, what's that mean? What's the difference between those? 
316 has a little higher chromium and nickel content, mm. which makes it more rust resistant than the 304. 304 is more of a standard like you would find in your barbecue grills, you know, at the store. <clears throat> 316 is more of a pharmaceutical grade that's common for the pharmaceutical company. Okay. So you mentioned um, trade shows where you're kind of your foray into marketing and connecting with clients. Mm -hmm. Is that still your guys' primary? Yes. Yeah, so every year we go, to, it's been 30 years in a row now, we go to the big Interfex New York City Javits Center Pharmaceuticals show. Okay. And, uh, two years ago before the, the uh, pandemic started, I guess in 2000, at the end of 2019, we did go to the marijuana business show in Las Vegas. Now, that thing was unbelievable. There were like, I think, like 40,000 people at that one. <clears throat> and uh, it generated, uh, we were generating maybe 10% of our annual sales at that time from marijuana companies. But then they died off when the pandemic started. Uh, and I think it was because they overbuilt the growing and uh, processing capacity in Canada, mostly in Canada and the U.S., and they didn't have enough retail shops to sell it. <laughs> so it, it kind of died down in 2020 and 21. 2022 this year seems to be picking up a little. So we may go back to that show next year. I didn't want to go this year because I wasn't sure. You know, we'd have to budget maybe $20,000 to go to a show like that in Las Vegas. Are there other marketing methods that you're using with well, with uh, success? Yeah, we uh, really are working on our, our website. We put some of your videos in there, actually. And uh, we have a um, marketing company uh, that's helping us to improve our website and doing uh, analytics on it with the right keywords, actual extra... Uh, um, how should I say, information pages to, to boost our uh, searchability when, you know, when you search for our products that come up uh, in Google, you know, on the first page. Uh, and it's helped. I mean, you, we used to get 40 hits an average a day on our website. Now it's like 60, 70 with all the improvements we did to our website. Um, Are you guys doing uh, like paper like <clears throat> campaigns through Google or anything like no, that? No, we haven't been doing that. We thought of that doing um, like a uh, e email blast or things like that. But we have to be very careful and selective. I don't want to bug the companies, our customers either, with too much of that. I mean, I get enough of it on my computer and I just delete it. So we've been thinking about that, maybe in a limited fashion. Do you guys have anyone in-house focusing on marketing, or is it me and the sales team? <laughs> you and the sales team. Yeah. So, for how many people are in the sales team? There are three. Three, and what do you guys have them kind of doing? Just meeting with existing clients, or is it a lot of prospecting? And they uh, they meet with existing clients. Most of our new uh, clients come in through Google on our website, and then they, of course they're talking and meeting with our existing clients. Um, but most of it comes in through our, our uh, basically our website through Google. Because when you go on our website, uh, there's an information request or quote request link. So that, a lot of those come in too for new clients or existing clients. But for, uh, new clients also come in for, from Google, just from Googling something similar to, or a name of one of our products. And do you guys have much competitors in your space? Well, that's the nice thing. We don't. 
Um, we've seen some similar products from Asia that are cheaper, um, but when you they look nice in the pictures, but when you get them in hand, you'll see it's not the same thing. Did you guys buy some to check yes. them out? Yeah. <laughs> we've also seen them at the trade shows too. Okay. So. Yeah, and nobody nobody makes exactly what we're making either. We're kind of unique, and we're in a niche. Um, <clears throat> where we will modify our products uh, according to our customers' needs. So a lot of the bigger companies um, don't want to get involved with these small, smaller engineering project orders. So they like us for that. They come to us. So what would you say has been one of the bigger challenges that you've had to overcome in, in uh, guiding this business? Mm. Well, the biggest challenge was when I came first came in, and you know the cash was going out faster than coming in, mm -hmm. and dealing with family to convince them we got to change. We just can't keep doing this, doing it this way. That was probably the biggest. So, um, <clears throat> when you guys are sending products out, I'm I'm assuming most of it's shipped, right? So, mm -hmm. how do you guys handle that, making sure your products you know stay so, protected? Yeah, we spend a lot of money on. Uh, packaging our products okay and uh, so we use a combination of polyurethane foams which fit the box and the container perfectly or we use uh, a special kind of uh, bubble wrap uh, it's not the kind where you can step on and pop it these bubbles are super strong so because they're all interconnected to each other and so it's kind of like a shock absorber you know you step on one and the others still stay there and so it costs a lot of money to uh, for the packaging foam and these bubble wrap products that we use. But we have to spend it because, you know, sometimes UPS, they'll just throw a box around and the slightest little ding and our customer is not happy. You know, it's got to be pristine when it reaches them. Mm -hmm. um, I wanted to talk a little bit too. I remember you were saying that um, business is good, but supply chain stuff is so expensive right now. Mm -hmm. How are you guys working with the rising costs? And mm -hmm the 22 environment we're in right now. So uh, from the perspective of shipping a container overseas, it used to be 6,000. Now it went up a year ago to during the pandemic to 35,000. It's coming back down. Okay. And I'm getting quotes from other companies too, to keep them competitive. But I think we're coming back down to the $9,000 range. We're back, not back to 6,000. As far as the steel, hey, the spot rate is the spot rate. It used to be, 260 a pound, 270 a pound, now it's over four bucks a pound, okay. But the steel is the l a low cost component of our products, okay. So that doesn't affect us very much. It's more the labor. Obviously, you know, with the consumer price index, we've had to pay them more to keep them up so they can buy their groceries and everything, so. So have you had to raise your prices to keep yes. up with all of this? Yes, this year is the first time we raised our prices 10%. Um, and probably next year, 2023, we'll have to do the same thing. And I was really surprised because our pharmaceutical customers, not one complaint about the 10% increase this year, um, because they, they kind of expected it. I mean, their costs are going up too. So they know, they understand. Um, so, you know, the costs are the costs we try to minimize and negotiate, but at the end of the day, if our expenses go up, we got to increase our price, sales price, list prices. So, 
So nobody complained though. Were there any negative side effects to raising your prices or? Nope. So far, <laughs> no so good. You know, uh, in 2020 to 2021, our sales went up 10% even during the pandemic because it's mostly pharmaceutical. They need to buy our products to make their drugs, right? And from 2021 to this year, I'm expecting a 10% increase in sales. Is that but, in the number of sales or the? Uh, uh, dollar volume. The dollar volume. Okay. Top line sales. But the profit this year may be a little flatter in the increase because of the increased costs. Well, that's really cool that you're bringing all the employees paychecks up with that too. Oh yeah, yeah. It seems like you, you really have a good respect, <clears throat> respect me, I'll respect and take care of you guys too, which is yeah. a really nice culture. Where... I want to have happy employees. Uh, not necessarily do they have to like everybody, but they got to respect everybody here, right? We all got to be respectful. But I think in general, everybody likes each other too. That's good to have respect and likability. Mm-hmm. And I imagine there's a, a fair amount of training that's involved too. So like once yes. you've invested in your people, you want, you need them to stay on for. Yes. Cause I don't want to have to retrain, retrain again. Uh, you know, I was lucky to, uh, the girl I have in the lady I have, I shouldn't say girl in shipping came from Indonesia and she, she never was in shipping before, but she was so personable that everybody else taught her everything. And she could do the whole shipping department by herself now. I mean, she's unbelievable. You know, I was lucky to find her. And uh, I found her through another Indonesian girl who I hired from Costco, believe it or not. I just like this girl. I saw her at Costco. We buy a lot of supplies there. She's always smiling, working hard. And uh, I said, do you want a job? <laughs> so she came over and took a look. She said, I'll give it a try. I put her in shipping first because... She didn't know anything about what we're doing. I said, if you've got good interpersonal skills, we'll teach you. The employees will teach you. So she did so well in shipping that we moved her into sales, and she's doing great in sales. And then her friend, who's also Indonesian, is the one we hired for shipping. We just lucked out because she's the greatest employee I ever found. <laughs> I'm very happy with her. How many employees do you have? 20. 20. Yeah. So, um, looking forward a little bit, do you guys have any plans to move into any, I know you dabbled in the marijuana industry, any other industries or expansions you're looking to move into? Well, we're always hoping, you know, we could expand into food and cosmetics, uh, nutraceuticals, but those beer and wine, those companies can't afford, you know, the prices of our products as easily as the pharma companies. The pharma companies afford our prices because of all the regulatory and quality documentation that goes along with our products. Um, and also, once they qualify us into their drug manufacturing process or drug substance manufacturing process, then you're hopefully good and better with them because they don't want to have to go and qualify another one mm -hmm. <laughs> if they can find another one like us. So do you have any general tips for people who are looking to get into manufacturing industry or they may have a manufacturing business that isn't doing so well? Mm. Or advice? Well, I could say, uh, we, you know, we didn't have any manufacturing cap capability in the beginning, but we had a pretty good idea that the pharma companies could use our products. So we tried to leverage. I mean, we didn't have a lot of money in the beginning. We just bought a container and rented a uh, office. <laughs> and did the cleaning of the containers in our house 
and just shipping and, and we had to sh uh, we had to get a warehouse too uh, we couldn't keep it all at our house but uh, i think the thing is to find a good product that offers value to a customer and we were lucky in that way in that our products offered good value to the pharmaceutical uh companies and then it branched off into other products that they told us they could they would want us to make for them and that's how it started um the only other thing i could say is uh you know your financing is important but don't over don't get into too much you know like like our gun project that almost killed us you know a million dollars on machines that really weren't generating any revenue for us um so be careful with the projects you pick maybe sometimes it's better to terminate a project sooner than later that's great anything else you wanted to yeah i think that's about it um mm -hmm. Oh, I did have one question about the uh, the trade show. Um, how much does it cost to, to attend and have a booth at a trade show for oh. three days? Yeah, so the, the Javits Center in New York City, uh, it, it we have a 20-foot booth there. Uh, it costs us about 15000 just to reserve that booth hmm. uh, with the lights and the electricity, I mean, and the nice soft rug with the cushion underneath. But then we spend another five to 6000 to ship our booths, our, uh, our, our products up there for the show. And also, you know, travel and entertainment up there. Uh, one thing we did that was that worked out good for us was we generated our shipping boxes um, hold our products, okay, inside. And a lot of companies um, take their products out and have the boxes taken away by the union guys, um, and then they set up other tables. But we use our boxes as the tables. So once we take our product out, well, we have covers, nice table covers. We take the table covers out, put our products on top, and the boxes serve as the tables. And that way, we ship up in those boxes, and then when we take down the show, we put everything back in the boxes right away. We don't have to wait for the union guys to bring the boxes out. Mm -hmm. So I guess after 30 years, we've got it <laughs> as about as efficient as we can do it. Because we want to get out of there on a Thursday afternoon as soon as possible. Pack up and go. Well, great. Is there any announcements or anything you want to tell people about Eagle Stainless? I, I can't say uh, from a product point of view, not right now, but I think things, new things could be coming. And from a finance point of view, there are changes, which I can't say uh, at this time, too. Okay. Well, Charlie, thanks so much for being on our show. Okay, you're welcome. Stories from the Top is your guide to successful business development. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or find Edge of Cinema on YouTube. Stories from the Top is an Edge of Cinema production hosted by Matthew Skura and Jeremy Schmidt. To learn more or get in touch, visit edgeofcinema.com slash podcast.